welcome back to our weird history episode where we bring to see wow where we bring to see this is gonna go at the end of the blooper welcome back to our weird history episode where we seek to bring you tales of the strange and unusual throughout history finally got through it what are we talking about this week, Melissa? Uh, crazy people. We like those. I'm particularly fond of this specific type of crazy people. This is a topic I have been wanting to share for quite some time. I also want to off uh, at, at the beginning, just note that like with last episode, still getting over being a bit sick. So I apologize if I cough a bit. Or little sniffles. I'm just sort of like the tail end of this thing. Uh, we are talking about eccentric English preachers. Most of them being from the Victorian times. And they are crazy. Uh, all English preachers were. I mean, it's at the Anglican church. They have their own method of doing things, I suppose. And in case anyone's wondering, most of the information that I have today comes from two main sources. The Field Guide to the English Clergy, written by Reverend Fergus Butler Galleys and came out in 2018. Fantastic book. If you like what I mentioned today, I recommend looking up that book because it's a great read. And then also The Eccentric Vicars of England from alcation.com. I'm really excited about this topic. There's a very long list of eccentric English preachers. And if this episode is popular and you guys want some more, let us know because I could definitely make this an ongoing series that could pop up from time to time. More than happy to do that. Sounds like fun. Oh, you have no idea. And I'm so excited. All right, you ready to start off? So first on our list is Reverend Robert Stephen Hawker who lived from 1803 to 1875. And Reverend Hawker could be described as one of England's most eccentric preachers of the Victorian times. He was born in 1803 and became an Anglican priest and practiced mostly in the area of Cornwall. At the age of 19, he married a woman named Charlotte Eliza Eans. At the time of their marriage, Charlotte was 41 years old. Uh, that's interesting. I normally think it's the opposite of that time. That's what bleeds into today is the fact that majorly it's accepted that men are older than the woman they marry. True. Well, in this case, Charlotte was pretty well off. So he married more for money, I think. Oh, never mind. I, I rescind what I said. Because Charlotte seemed to be fairly well off, that gave... Reverend Hawker, or Robert Stephen at the time, uh, the ability to go to university and obtain a degree and then eventually take his orders into the priesthood. In 1834, the couple moved to the parish of Morinstow in Cornwall. And despite the challenge of administering spiritual guidance to the 200 or so people in Morinstow at the time who hadn't had a spiritual guide for about at least a hundred years by this point, Reverend Hawker found it rather suited him and he stayed there ministering to the people of Morinstow 
until his death in 1875. That is quite the career. Yep, about 40 years. And he was actually quite affectionate to the people of Cornwall and really loved being there. And they affectionately called him Parson Hawker. And according to accounts, Hawker also loved to write poetry. He had even taken to building a driftwood hut on a clifftop where he would try to bring forth his muse in order to write his poetry, spending hours inside the hut. You can actually visit the hut today. It's still up and it's actually the smallest property that's owned by English National Trust. It looks more like an outhouse in a hillside than a hut, but if it works. I think it's time we uh, book our tickets. We got a list of places to go in England and I'm all for it. During his later years, he would also pen a poem about an imprisoned bishop. And this was called The Song of the Western Men. And today the poem turned to song is called Trelawney and is sort of the unofficial anthem for Cornwall. Just a, a, a kind of interesting legacy there. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's just some little tidbits about the life of Reverend Hawker. We're not even yet getting into his eccentricities. We're going to get into them right now. He was known to have dressed in very bright colors, which was not super common during the Victorian times. And this is the type of clothing he would typically wear when he's not at church. On one recounting of one of his outfits, he was quoted as wearing a long purple coat, a bright blue fisherman's jersey with red trousers tucked into watertight boots or waterproof boots. Was this dude like the Joker or something? <laughs> he sounds like, hi there, I'm right here. <laughs> you cannot avoid me. You cannot miss me. You will always see me. Bright personality to go with some bright clothing, I suppose. Understatement. <laughs> now, when he was at church, he would wear the typical black vestments and white collar. It's also said that when he was wearing his vestments, it was also the only time he wore socks. Why would you not want to wear socks for the rest of the day? I don't know. Cornwall's also pretty cold typically or at least at this time I, I mean i understand cornwall to be kind of windy foggy and wet but if you're from cornwall let us know maybe i'm correct incorrect on that so we'll see but it's also said that he once had conversations with saint morena who was a local saint in cornwall as well as a conversation with some birds while he's also having conversation with saint morena and when one of his parishioners asked him about the conversation he had had between him, the saint, and the birds, Reverend Hawker wouldn't tell him about the conversations. And what were said conversations about? We don't know. He wouldn't tell anyone. But the next point on my list might explain some of that, though. It was written by David Thompson that Hawker, quote, believed that the air was thick with invisible angels and demons, but... He also had a fondness for opium. 
And that was a very big fondness for opium. So it's very likely he was under the uses of the drug while he's probably imagining these conversations. And if that's not eccentric enough for you, he even once excommunicated one of his cats. How do you excommunicate a cat? I would say go back to our medieval animal court episode. If you're a preacher, you can excommunicate anybody you want. That doesn't make it right. No, but the story behind Reverend Hawker goes that on a Sunday, he caught one of his cats mousing. And I don't know if it was during Lent or not, but like the cat was not supposed, he's like, no, 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 no. You're not supposed to be catching meat and having food on Sunday. It's Sunday. No, 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 no. So, but what he would do is have all of his cats together and then excommunicate this one cat in front of all of his other cats to teach them a lesson about mousing on Sundays. That's ridiculous because the cats totally paid attention and cared. Absolutely. It turns out that Hawker was also quite a lover of animals. It's reported that he kept 10 cats, all of which would actually follow him to church. Several birds, a pig, as well as a stag. I don't know if he actually owned the stag or sort of tamed the, the stag. That wasn't, that wasn't clear to me. Well, I mean, first of all, let's just say crazy cat parishioner. Not crazy cat mom, crazy cat dad, yeah. Then how do you get the stag? Like, what? I don't know. Couldn't find that information out. I just thought it was really weird. He also named the stag, called him Robin, and apparently tried to convince his congregation that Robin was quite tame. However, when they would come by to the vicarage, Robin had a habit of pinning visitors to the vicarage. So he wasn't as tame as he tried to make him out to me. Sounds ridiculous. No, the last point on Reverend Hawker is absolutely ridiculous. I love this last one. The most eccentric <clears throat> tale of the parson is the time that he believed that he was a mermaid. What? <laughs> he believed that he was a mermaid. He was very wrong. Not quite. Hold on. Just get ready for this one. For reasons unknown, but before he became a vicar and before he even took the orders, probably while he was in university, Hawker created and donned a wig that was made of seaweed and created a tail from oil skin that he would wrap around his legs. And then he would either row or swim depending on your sources, up to a rock out in Butte Harbor, perch himself upon it as a mermaid would, and then begin to sing. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I gets even more ridiculous. Oh, but... no. I can't. <laughs> Apparently he would do this frequently enough at least that it began to draw crowds who would quote come to see the mermaid perform uh-huh uh-huh 
Now, after a few months of doing this, he had to cease being a mermaid. Some say it was due to the oncoming winter because it was going to get really, really cold. One legend has it that a local farmer brought his gun to the harbor and threatened to shoot the mermaid if she didn't stop singing. White threat. <laughs> One reason or another, after his last performance as a mermaid, Hawker is said to have sung God Save the King, then dove into the water and swam back to shore. And then took up being uh, a preacher or a vicar and ended up in Cornwall and lived there until 1875. And that is the first on our list today. If that's the start out, oh boy. That's the start for sure. Second on our list is Reverend Frederick William Densham, who lived from 1870 to 1953. And Reverend Densham also hailed from Cornwall and presided over the parish of Warligan from 1931 to 1953. And I, I, I really kind of have a feeling you might like this one in particular. I'm not sure why. It isn't certain as to why, but he seemed to have a penchant for making people steer clear of him. He was described in the field guide as being irascible and unsociable. This behavior of his towards people in general was apparently so unwelcome to his parishioners that he not only made people want to not be near him, he drove his parishioners away from his own church. Sounds like my kind of guy. <laughs> oh, just wait. Now, despite the lack of actual people, Densham would still write his sermons and preach them inside the empty church. Apparently, he even has records of attendance for the church. At one point, writing, no fog, no wind, no rain, no congregation. Now, possibly not wanting to preach to a seemingly empty church, much like um, an actor performing in, in an empty theater, the reverend took to making cardboard cutouts of people and placing them in the pews of the church. He even went as far as to give them all names of various vicars. Okay. <laughs> Dude sounds a little kooky. Oh, he's kooky. This, again, is just scratching the surface of Densham's eccentric behavior. Apparently, he despised teaching Sunday school and despised organ music. I could see that depending. I enjoy organ music personally, but, you know, some people don't like teaching. Some people don't like organs. I could kind of get that one, though. But... Let me think about this. You're a preacher. You're a parishional, parishioner. The, the main thing that's played in the parish is an organ. Well, just because it's the main instrument that's played for the church doesn't mean you have to enjoy it. Apparently, at one point, and this is very footloose, he banned the town from being able to dance because he claimed that it was an affront to his Christian views. 
I just don't think he liked people. It's also said that he abhorred smoking. And if he saw anyone in his parish smoking, he would rain a verbal fire and brimstone upon them. We're still going to get crazier from here. At one point, now, in case you're not familiar, a vicarage is the home that the vicar stays in. So it's just called, it's his house. At one point during the time he's here in Warligan, he surrounded his home with eight foot tall barbed wire. At one point later on, he would change it to 12 feet of barbed wire. He really didn't like people. No. And it gets even better than that. If you went to the vicarage to see him, you had to announce yourself by banging on a very large empty gasoline drum, announcing your presence. And then you would have to state your name and your reason for the visit. And if he wasn't in the mood to talk to anyone, which is probably most of the time, he would deny you access and you wouldn't get to talk to him. The, I think, craziest portion of all this for me, because I can sort of get the antisocial behavior, this last point, a bit weird. At one point, he decided to re repaint the inside of St. Bartholomew's Church. Now, usually... That would probably kind of be kind of an, an innocuous thing. You just want to give it a facelift, make it pretty, right? Not Densham. He decided he would paint the entire, at least more, most of, if not the entirety end, inside of the church with stripes of red, blue, and yellow. Dear Lord, why? I don't know. No idea why you would do that. Because he could? I don't know. Maybe because it was so garish, it would drive people away. But he didn't have a congregation in the first place. They didn't want to come to his sermons. Oh, shocking. <laughs> so, <laughs> as is not already evident on this list, each one gets a little crazier, a little more eccentric. So. Third, we're going to talk about Reverend Harold Francis Davidson. And I'm just laughing at the name. Why? Francis Harold Davidson? Harold Francis. I'm sorry, Harold Francis Davidson? It's a very English name. It is. It's so English. I could probably come up with a couple more distinctly English names if I tried. That's a very basic English name. But he came from a very long line of clergymen. Possibly as many as 27 family members up by this point had been clergy. Hmm. Quite a bit. Yeah. Quite a bit of family as clergy. And as a child, he was very obviously expected father follow in his father's footsteps and be, to become a pastor now while he's attending Whitgift school he took up acting as like I guess an elective and during this time he also took to working and both of them apparently distracted him from his studies and he failed to attain a scholarship to Oxford which he was supposed to do in order to take his orders 
Now, against his father's disapproval, Davidson tried to his hand as uh, a stage comedian and an actor. Mm-hmm. I, he I would. I that last part. I would. I love acting. And he found minor success after leaving school in 1894 and kind of toured around the, the area. And during the next handful of years, he did his best to actually keep a very strict code of morality. He had high standards. He was a teetotaler. And he could be seen reading the Bible to the elderly while he was on tour. It was part of his family lineage. And now, one point while he was in London, he happened to have an event that would completely change his life. In November of 1894, he was walking along the Thames on one of the embankments and saw a 16-year-old girl about to jump into the river. He was successfully able to talk her out of it and it chatted her up for a bit. And eventually he realized that she was both homeless and penniless. He decided that he'd be very kind and pay her fair home and later said that her pitiful story made a tremendous impression on me. So with the help of a family friend, Davidson got back into working towards the family business of clergy. He passed his exams in 1903 and was soon ordained by the Bishop of Oxford. His first post was at the Holy Trinity Church bleh, at the Holy Trinity Church in Berkshire, and in 1905 he transferred to London as a curate at St. Martin's of the Fields. And seven, 17, my brain doesn't work today. In 1906, he actually became the vicar for parishes of Stiffkey St. John and Stiffkey St. Mary and Morston. That same year, he married his longtime girlfriend, Molly, who was also a stage actress, and they soon began to fill the church with their growing family. After taking up position at Stiffkey, Davidson soon began to spend his weeks in London on doing various kinds of social work. This would consistently include being involved with the Melbourne Mission, as well as as a chaplain to the Actors Church Union in Covent Gardens. And here specifically, he would be seen ministering to showgirls backstage. And eventually, at one point, he would extend his ministry to Paris at the girls at the Folie Bergère, and sometimes would even invite actresses to stay at the rectory if they needed a place, a safe place to come. Again, not that bad. That's, it's a very kind thing to do. It's very in keeping with his character, except apparently he had, okay, so his wife was an actress. He was a really big into theater. He had a really big thing for very young girls, like teenage girls who were also actresses. That was his big thing. So, and it, it, most of his ministrations were to, prostitutes we'll get into and also actresses but again at this time a lot of people still view them as one the same thing and sometimes they were but when he's inviting actresses to come stay as a safe place at the rectory again that's not exactly a bad thing it's that that apparently sometimes it could be up to 20 actresses at a time staying with him and his growing family yuck well, his wife being an ex-actress, also not quite fond of that. Because he had a type. Oh, really? As I've mentioned, he has a type. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And this was not only looked down upon and disapproved of by the locals, but obviously Molly. And also the church warden who has to run the church. During World War I, he joined and was a Navy chaplain, 
And after World War I, he took up his old habits of doing social work in London. And typically, social work in London would be from Monday to Saturday. Sometimes he would be late getting back to Stiff Key on Sunday and sermons would start late. Sometimes he just didn't show up at all and stayed in London for the whole week. Much to the chagrin of his locals and, of course, his family. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me take several guesses as to why. Oh, probably, you know, out with an actress or two or three or four. And you're not off. Yeah. But not quite actresses. He soon began to extend his charity towards the street women of London, to the prostitutes. And he would be seen taking them out for a meal, paying for them to kind of have a nice warm place for a few hours, you know, sit in a cafe. And he was also apparently known to tap dance in order to give them some uh, uh, entertainment for at least a brief while. Yeah, that doesn't really sound like a bad thing. And for this, he actually gained a reputation as the prostitute's padre. Which, if you're doing charity and social work, I don't really see that as a problem. But a lot of other people did. By estimations of the time that Davidson was doing this, it's estimated during about 12 years of time, he had approached 150 to 200 girls to try to minister them and get them over to the church and also do charity work and, and make sure that they were, you know, taken care of and being safe. Davidson claimed that it wasn't 150 to 200 over 12 years. It was close to between 500 and a thousand. That's horrifying. Well, yeah. Because think about it, and, and in either case, think about it this way. His general shtick, if you will, would he wouldn't just go up to prostitutes or actresses or people on the street. Like if they saw if it's one thing if you see someone kind of really down their luck, you know, they they're just need a, a nice place, a warm place to sit for a few hours, have a small meal, cup of coffee or something, just you know, a company for a couple of hours, two, three hours. That's not, I don't see that as a bad thing. What he would do is constantly go up and down all the tea shops and cafes, chat up the waitresses. And many of the establishments not only considered him to be a pest because he was constantly in there trying to spread the word of God to the, to these people who were just trying to work, but they also barred him from entering because he was such a nuisance, not only to the workers, but to the, the customers. I'm not surprised. He seemed like a nuisance all around. Absent-minded and a nuisance, yeah. I mean, the thing is, he had good intentions, but his approach was not helpful and would not help him later on either. According to Ronald Blythe, who's the author of the book, The Rector of Stiffkey, which I kind of really want to read, he says, the Reverend Mr. Davidson's downfall was girls. And I've mentioned this before, not eight girl, not five or six even, not a hundred, but the entire tremulous universe of girlhood. Shingled heads, 
clear cheeky eyes, nifty legs, warm blunt fingered workaday hands, small firm breasts, and most importantly, good strong healthy teeth besotted him. I kind of, that last sentence made me start to think of the Reddit thread, men reading women. <laughs> Bad. It's always got to start mentioning breasts. <laughs> I mean, again, the Reverend Davidson had a type, but I, I really sometimes really enjoy watching videos um, about the Reddit thread, men writing women, men writing women badly and men writing women anatomy. Sometimes they're just ridiculous. <laughs> uh, Ronald Bryce also goes on to write that Davidson was mesmerized by the ineffable harmonies created by starch linen crackling over young breasts and black stocking calves and a chubby conference just below the hem of the parlor maid's frock. <sighs> Man. Uh, that's just... Uh, so wrong and creepy. And it's all manners of creepy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I'm not necessarily defending him. I just think he had good intentions, but he also was really approaching it the wrong way. Oh, there's, there's the social standard of doing work, social work, and the social standards of being a creep. Oh, all the way. Yeah, yeah. I think he was treading the line on that one. Oh, I think he just had crossed over into creep. Well, but that's yeah, why... yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll get into that. Although he took the title of prostitute's padre pretty proudly because he believed he was doing the Lord's work while doing social work and charity for those who were out on the streets. Others did not approve of that. It's kind of that there were those, it's not, so it's not like the church is against doing social work and helping the homeless, but they, in this particular case, they were against helping prostitutes, which is kind of a theme throughout a lot of history too, but oh, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, many in the church and his church and like the, the bishop of london and everybody and the hierarchy above him being davidson began to actually start to spread rumors about davidson because they didn't like his ministering style and claimed that he quote had strayed from the spiritual to the carnal meaning that again he probably started out with good intentions ministering the word of god to these women but because he's working alongside actresses and prostitutes which at this point again people were still referring to as being one and the same he was having inappropriate relations with them as well which is not what he's supposed to be doing whether that was true or not and a very drawn out and highly publicized and highly fabricated case against davidson he was eventually defrocked in 1932 and there has actually been no evidence. It was all circumstantial. And it was hearsay and witness testimony. So it, it, there was no factual, concrete evidence ever found 
that he had slept with any of the prostitutes or the actresses or the waitresses that he was ministering to, nor that he ever strayed from his long marriage. But did he? We don't know. He for his his wife though wasn't happy with his the way his way of teaching the minister of God. He just, but and also because she was a former actress, she knows his type, and most of them were staying with him twenty at a time. So I did. We're not sure, but he maintained his innocence for the rest of his life. Now believing in his teachings, but no longer to uh, allow to officially preach, he reverted back to acting and then started off with a variety act in July of 1932, not long after being defrocked. And this began in Wimbledon. He would actually go on tour until probably likely under church pressure because he's still ministering, even though he's not an official preacher, the theater troops no longer would hire him. He also, that, that, that reputation from the highly publicized, the fabricated court case probably stuck with him as well. From there, he decided that he was going to make an act out of himself. Thousands of people over a period of time would go to Blackpool and peer at him through a window when he sat in a barrel and he would kind of do his work. It was, it was a weird sideshow. I couldn't find a lot of information about it nor could I find pictures. And so I'm not exactly certain exactly what this kind of sideshow was. All I could find was that he was sitting in a barrel. There was a window and you could look in, which sounds very weird. But apparently this barrel act would become a main staple for him for quite some time. And other things that he would do in order to make some money to send back home would be put himself, uh, freeze himself essentially in a refrigerated chamber which kind of would have been new at the time. And patrons could also come and watch him as he was roasted over a glass-fronted oven in which he was additionally poked at by a mechanical devil with a pitchfork. What? Probably oh roasting in the pits of hell being picked, poked at by the devil. Most of his acts would have been religious-based. Yeah, just so very harsh. Yeah, quite weird. I don't know. Ed, I mean, it was successful. I, I don't know how much he made, but it was certainly successful as a sideshow act. However, by 1937, so five years after being officially defrocked, his sideshow acts were beginning to wane. And he began looking for additional ways to make money. He actually accepted an invitation she joined Captain Fred Rye's animal-themed show in Skegness. And here he would develop his most remembered sideshow act. For 10 minutes at a time, he would proselytize outside of a cage and then go into the cage and be locked in. That's not the weird part. The absolute crazy thing is that this cage housed two fully adult grown lions what a nut job yeah <laughs> yeah mind you they were tamed lions but they're lions nonetheless you might know where this might be going it does not look like it's gonna end good or well 
Yeah. So he built, he was billed as essentially the uh, Daniel and a modern's lion's den. So Daniel facing the lion. And when he started doing this, it attracted very large audiences, partly because you've got a, a, a crazy person, an eccentric, uh, uh, locking himself in a cage with two adult lions. That of itself is worth a, a look. Partly because you're also coming for what might be a horror show. And they also, I mean, lions were kind of, I mean, they're on the crest of England, but lions are pretty nifty and people like to go see the lions when they're at the zoo anyway. And to give you a little extra tidbit, the two lions were named Freddie and Toto. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. That's a big Toto. <laughs> Very big Toto. And this act actually seemed successful for quite some time up until the middle of the year and July of 28 of 1937. During his evening performance, he gave his usual speech before going into the cage. At some point, though, again, it's in the evening, although it's in July, but I don't know how late in the evening, so how dark was it outside? So he, maybe, he, I, I don't know. But at some point, while he's in the cage in this evening performance, Davidson somehow agitated Freddie. Freddie proceeded to snag Davidson by the back of his neck and fling him about in the cage, side to side, rawr, 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 to the horror of everybody watching. Eventually, the lion's tamer was able to get Freddie to drop Davidson, whom she then uh, pulled out of the cage. But by then, it was definitely too late for Reverend Davidson. He was bleeding unconscious and suffered a broken neck. And it's believed that he never regained consciousness. He would die about five days later from his injuries. Although, surprisingly, not just due to his injuries. You'd think the lion mauling would be enough, but not quite. A little extra here for you. It is actually believed to have been hastened by the administering doctor who, believing him unknowingly to be a diabetic, also injected him with insulin, which hastened his death. Yeah. It's what happens when you're not actually diabetic. Yeah. Yep. It, it, yeah. He went pretty quickly. At least he was unconscious, hopefully, for, for all of that. And his death by the coroner ruled it as death by misadventure, which is, I just, just like that. Death by misadventure. It's a great title. Just in terms of a way someone died. That's what I want on my tombstone. Death by misadventure. Although I really don't think I'll have a tombstone, so. Yeah, we'll figure it. We'll do a plaque or something for you. Something. <laughs> I'm dead. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> to follow this one off before we get to the rest of the list. Um, there, obviously, so he's got, he's, he had quite a, a life, for sure, particularly in the latter five, six years. So. The court case alone would be enough to write a book about, but let, you know, the court case, the sideshows, the circus acts, his, his adult life, 
there have been several books about him, his life and his death, but here's where things get a little extra weird, just a little bit extra information for you. Okay. There have been two musicals about his life. One's from the 60s and one's from the 70s. Um, weird, but okay. <laughs> I mean, it's the 60s and 70s. Fair enough. <laughs> Talk about eccentric times in history. <laughs> and there's also a short film and documentary about the Reverend of Stiffkey. Or the Rector of Stiffkey, essentially. Hmm. I don't think I'd want to watch it. I'll be honest. No, but I kind of want to. Oh, the book sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that kind of writing about soft linen and firm breasts, I don't know. Maybe I don't. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> it's such a weird way to write things, but that is everything on. Uh, uh, Harold Francis Davidson, the rector of Sifki. And now we're going to go next on our list. One of my favorites, Reverend John Allington, also known as Mad Jack Allington. Not to be confused with Mad Jack Churchill. That's a whole separate thing. There's a lot of crazy, crazy, crazy English people in English history, and I'm here for it. Now, I will say, so this particular episode is all about in crazy eccentric English preachers. Our next word history is going to tie into that, but slightly different because I'm just having way too much fun with these. This is a topic I've just wanted to share for so long, which is anybody because I love eccentric people a lot. So this one sort of plays into half of this episode in terms of he was a reverend and he was incredibly eccentric. But he was also the son of a lord, which will play into next week's episode, though he, he won't make an appearance. But I think it also kind of boils down to really, really rich kid who had lots of money and a lot of free time. So as a child, John Allington was the only son of the lord of the manor of Old Letchworth in Hertfordshire, and he would go on to attend Oxford and become the deacon of the university in 1819. Not long after that, he would also take up the position of the rector of Little Barford, which is near Cambridge. He didn't spend much time there though, because he was too busy running his estate in Old Letchworth. At one point, the vicar of Old Letchworth asked John if he could help out at the vicarage and give occasional sermons since he lived in the area. And so if the actual vicar of Old Letchworth needed to go to another town, there was somebody who could be his backup. The vicar would very soon regret his decision of asking Reverend John Allington to substitute. As soon as Allington started to help out, he insisted on overseeing every marriage and christening giving the actual vicar the task of overseeing the funerals, which no one wanted to actually do. In addition to that, Allington would also, one, replace Bible passages in his sermons with passages from various erotic poems. And two, 
instead of preaching about the values of a Christian marriage, he would preach about free love, sharing his views that everyone had a right to love whomever they wanted, whether they were married or not. And for some more information on the free love movement going around this time, also see part one of the Victoria Woodhull episode, which is also crazy and eccentric in of itself. Now, hearing about his behavior from various parishioners, Vicar of Old Letchworth complained to his higher up, the bishop, who then suspended Allington from being able to preach. Allington, though, was not the personality to just go off and find another profession. In defiance of the bishop, he turned part of his ancestral home into a chapel and set up his own church. Oh, boy. <laughs> he was just on a roll. Oh, again, just scratching the surface. Obviously, given his ideals, this church, this new church, became incredibly popular with the people of the town. And according to the Field Guide to the English Clergy, I'm going to give you a few points on how Reverend Davidson, I'm sorry, Reverend Ellington would conduct his sermons. I hope you're not drinking anything because you're probably going to spit it out with all this craziness. First, after setting up his church, Allington would entice his new parishioners to come to his new church with the prospect of unlimited free beer and free brandy. And to point it out on the beginning, Allington was also a massive lover of brandy and cognac making that very clear at the beginning so the alcohol would actually not just be offered after services but also before services and during services as well yeah and, oh no <laughs> i feel like that this is the kind of the, like how do i want to put this this is essentially if a frat party uh, if a frat house also ran a church, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, everyone was getting drunk before, during, and after services. And obviously, this attracted, because it's free alcohol, attracted all manners of people in the area, but particularly the traveling gypsies in the area who actually were allowed to come and camp on the grounds of the estate. The gypsies would actually become his most dedicated worshipers and took to calling him, quote, the parson gone out of business. I'm just laughing. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It, it, it only gets better. Oh, man. Oh, it only gets better. I'm, I'm just so excited. So to start his proceedings, Reverend Allington would play on his out-of-tune piano that he very affectionately and apparently christened with the name of Tiddlybump which sounds very Victorian. And then afterwards, if he was sober enough, he would, quote, make the rounds about the congregation. This meant that he would ride a hobby horse, which is an early predecessor to a, an actual bicycle, up and down the aisles of the congregation until he fell off. If he was too drunk 
to ride the hobby horse, his servants would wheel him up and down the aisles in a wheelbarrow, probably until he fell out. Sounds about right. <laughs> he would, after this, go on to change into his, his vestments. And of course, he's not going to wear just any old vestments. He's not going to wear the black robes and the white collar. He's going to make his own style. And if you thought the mermaid for Reverend Hawker was crazy, Reverend Allington and his spiritual vestments would don a leopard skin draped over his body while wearing a pair of Moroccan slippers. You just can't help but laugh. I love it. I'm not done yet. Oh, man. <laughs> this is just a description of how he would conduct his sermons. After changing into his leopard skin and Moroccan slippers, Allington would then be seen making his way to his quote-unquote pulpit, which was actually a hollowed-out tree trunk. From there, he would read whatever his fancy, typically love poems, and then go on to preach about the merits of free love. And then to signal for the day that he was done, he would take his wig and toss it into the drunken crowd in front of him, and then follow it up with a final hymn, typically accompanied by the gypsies on their violins, whilst being conducted by Allington using the tail of his leopard skin as a conductor's wand. Seems right. <laughs> I mean, why not? Now, everything I just mentioned was in relation to his eccentricity whilst sermonizing. He was also equally eccentric in private, earning him the name Mad Jack. Or at least it was part in earning the nickname of Mad Jack. On the grounds of his very large estate, he had constructed a very large lake, which was apparently modeled on the oceans of the world. Keep with me here. He would often invite guests to come to this estate to listen to him lecture about world geography, a topic he knew very little about. And while he taught them or lectured them about world geography, he would be on his enormous lake shaped like the world's oceans. And the guests would then watch him as he would boat about the large lake to different places. Okie doke. Uh -huh. Now, one of his most eccentric ideas, possibly topping all the other ones for Reverend Allington, if you could, was a particular mode of transportation that he come to prefer. This one I absolutely love. For a time, he insisted on being carried around by his servants and a coffin. Why? I mean, again, fascinated pertaining to death, but like, what is the point of that one? Because he could, but that's not all he did. Because if that wasn't crazy enough, he would actually take to being carried while the lid was closed. And as the coffin was carried around town, he would then pop out of the coffin, scaring his parishioners. 
All right. <laughs> now to end this chapter on Reverend Allington, in 1863, he fell quite ill and refused any medical treatment. Anything that his doctor would prescribe him to take, Allington would make his servants ingest. After a few days of being very ill, he created his own prescription, which was in a very large tumbler of cognac. Because I mentioned before, he's a massive lover of brandy. To the surprise of no one attending him that day, Mad Jack Allington, upon gulping the large quantity of cognac, immediately dropped it. So he died of alcohol, but after an overconsumption. It probably, I mean, given the amount of alcohol he drank throughout his life, he probably had alcohol poisoning. It's likely. Yeah. Last on our list for today is probably my absolute favorite on this list for today. And again, they only get crazier. So this would be the story of Reverend George Harvest, who lived from 1728 to 1789. And he is known even by his contemporaries at the time as the most forgetful man in England. Okay. And it, it, it's, it, it, yeah, that's a very adequate statement. Hmm. Oh. Sounds like my boyfriend. No, I I knew, not quite. I'm kidding. He forgets <laughs> things, but not like not that. like no one has forgotten things like George Harvest forgot things. Just wait. Harvest came from a fairly wealthy family and would go on to a, acquire a degree from Oxford before his taking his orders into the priesthood. And one time, while he's still a curate, he actually became betrothed to the daughter of the Bishop of London. Pretty high ranking. Plans were made to turn the wedding into a very impressive society wedding, which was to be also officiated by the Bishop of London, meaning that Harvest, George Harvest's boss, being the Bishop of London, would officiate his own wedding because he's marrying the guy's daughter. So that's a, it's a pretty high detailed wedding. While the bride's party was getting ready on the wedding day, Harvest apparently woke up and had just an irresistible urge to go fishing. I don't understand that, but okay. I mean, fishing is fun, but we're talking in just an irresistible urge to go fishing. He packed up his rods and his gear and then went off to find a good, a good fishing spot. There are no records as to how long the bride's party waited for the groom to show up. But it probably was hours. Dude's in trouble. His fishing is an hours long activity. Eventually, George Harvest remembered that he had something incredibly important to do that day and then ran as fast as he could back to the church. But by then, it was way too late. Yeah. 
And with this catastrophe of a wedding, he actually squandered any chances of promotion within the clergy because his boss is horrifically frustrated and just angered with him for standing up his daughter. Yeah, I would be too. Yeah. (laughs) It only gets worse. Oh, dear Lord. (laughs) Now, eventually, through a very powerful friend, Harvest was able to attain the post of the rector of Thames Ditton. While serving as the parish, I'm sorry, while serving the parish, Harvest would become involved with a local woman and the two of them would become engaged and soon set a wedding date. So he's now engaged for a second time. Real smart, but okay. I mean, if you want to get married, you want to get married. Prior to the wedding, Harvest had another moment of absolute absent-mindedness. One morning, he was supposed to meet up with his fiance, but he had slept in. Oh, yeah. Again, not the smartest of guys, but okay. (laughs) No. Realizing that he also needed to shave before he could leave, or at least meet up with his fiance, he came to the conclusion that it would be easier to shave en route whilst on his horse rather than waste time shaving at the rectory before riding over to her house. Uh huh. This dude does not think things through. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. As he neared his fiance's house, he stopped his horse at the end of the lane and took his toolkit out and began to shave. Now, the shaving part went rather well, but as he's attempting to pack up his kit, something spooked his horse and it ran down the lane. Anyone who was there that day would have seen a shirtless George Harvest, now reverend, his face probably covered in shaving cream or soap, on a horse speeding away, all the while his toiletries being scattered behind them. I kind of like it. It gets better. When the horse finally stopped, it actually stopped at the door of his fiance's home where she and her father were standing out there to greet him. Once again, fool made a fool of himself. Oh, very much so. We'll be in trouble. Oh, uh, oh, no, no. Yes, and it's only going to get worse. Again. Now, again, he's, he's already botched up one wedding, right? Because he decided he wanted to go fishing and then forgot that he had a wedding to go to. Now he's engaged for a second time. The day the wedding comes, the carriage rolls up to the vicarage to pick him up, and he's not there. What in the, was he fishing again? No. Uh-oh, where was he now? Well, apparently, it turns out that the weather might have been quite nice, and he decided it was a good idea to go out for a pleasant stroll. Forgetting that he's <gasps> getting married. Mm-hmm. Apparently, several hours after the wedding was supposed to happen, Harvest was having dinner 
with some people he had met on his walk when he finally realized he was supposed to have gotten married that day hours earlier. Upon his realization, he rushed off to the church and found the bride sobbing. And on the right next to her was her incredibly very furious father. Yep. Reverend George Harvest apparently tried to explain to them what happened. And at one point telling them, it had been one of the most pleasantest walks of my life. But that obviously did not help his case. No. After obviously forgetting to get married twice, Reverend George Harvest would remain a bachelor for the rest of his life. But we're not quite done yet either. <laughs> this dude just keeps messing up his own weddings. Oh, he just keeps messing up stuff. <laughs> so that's the life of Reverend George Harvest forgetting his, both his weddings, but his forgetfulness didn't just happen in his personal life either i mean we're not talking his, 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 his forgetfulness didn't just happen for his wedding the guy was oh. just forgetful uh-oh he missed sermons and everything else didn't he <laughs> oh just wait oh, just oh. wait now going back to the horses for just a second it seemed that george harvest was not just forgetful about people, but also absent-minded when it came to animals. To the point where no one in the neighboring three counties would ever lend him a horse, even just for a few hours. Apparently one too many times, he was seen returning to stables where he had borrowed horses, only holding the reins and the bridle but no horse. And when asked where the horse was, he was not able to give any explanation. It's a horse. It's rather large. How do you lose and then forget where and how you lost the horse? Not only that, why not go out after the horse you know you borrowed it he probably dismounted the horse wandered off and then forgot where the horse was more than likely just kind of went wandering back around and just found a bridle and tack and was like i'll just take this back right yeah probably another story recounted by a friend of his was the time that the two of them had been in London taking a stroll along the Thames. Apparently at one point during the walk, Harvest had collected a rock that he found quite interesting and wanting to take it home, put it in his pocket that he also kept his pocket watch in. Sometime later, the friend asked Harvest what time it was and watched in horror as he took his pocket watch out of his pocket read the time and then forgetting that it was his pocket watch, thought it was the rock and then skimmed it across the river. It wasn't until much later that Reverend Harvest realized his mistake when he went to reach for his pocket watch later on the evening to realize that the only thing in his pocket was the stone he collected. 
I feel like there was something wrong. Like short-term memory was a huge problem as in the synapses never fired. <laughs> That's incredibly possible. <laughs> I mean, even the nutty professor or the absent-minded professor, I think they're pretty much the same. Well, I don't think he was even this absent-minded and we're not done. <laughs> now, Reverend George Harvest was also quite forgetful at church as well. And apparently on several occasions had forgotten about Sunday services, which is his main day for sermonizing, and got scared when he would hear loud noises coming from inside the church. And fear that there were intruders, he went and grabbed his gun and then burst into the church, only to find his parishioners there sitting inside waiting for him. He forgot about a sermon? No, he probably didn't forget about writing it necessarily. He forgot that it was Sunday. Yeah, that's what I mean. He thought yeah. it, he forgot that it was the day he was supposed to give a sermon and lead the church. Of all the days to forget that you're a reverend, Sunday is the holiest day. Yeah. Oh, boy. I'm not <laughs> sure there was a line of work for this guy at all. <laughs> What's really interesting, though, about this, about, just about George Harvest in general, particularly his, his, his parish that he uh, took part in, was that despite his eccentricities, and obvious absent-mindedness, his parishioners were actually quite fond of him and even took part in playing jokes on him. I played jokes on this dude too. (laughs) 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 I would totally do this too. So apparently, frequently, they would secret unrelated pieces of paper into his sermon book and then would watch as he read them out loud, not realize that he's not reading his sermons. That's awesome. That's not the best thing that they did either. That's freaking funny. I love it. I love that. No, it, it also gets better. They really had fun playing pranks on him. On another occasion, the congregation actually watched as he read a rather lewd poem rather than informing about the, the congregation about the upcoming marriages, because someone had secreted a very lewd poem into that particular section of his sermon book. And when the crowd began to laugh, he realized what he had just read out loud and then also became quite confused. <laughs> there is no line of work that this dude could have done. <laughs> I, I think I've got one more that can top that in terms of pranks. Oh, really? Oh, All yeah. Right. No. On another instance, the congregation actively, all together, slipped out of the church while he was up on his pulpit reading a very long homily. George Harvest never even noticed until the church warden came up to him and told him that he needed to lock up the church. Uh, if this guy was my preacher, parishioner, <laughs> person up on the stadium pole, I'd sneak out of the damn church too. I think he just went on and on and on and on reading whatever this homily was. And after a while, they got bored and just snuck out. 
every single one of them or hungry or whatever or bored and hungry or yeah or sleepy bored hungry and sleepy man yeah but he was so invested in what he was reading he wasn't paying attention to his actual congregation oh i know but it doesn't even end there oh lord so my last point on george harvest for today according to the book a field guide to the english clergy which again i highly recommend reading quote Perhaps his finest pastoral moment came when he was asked to explain the constellations of the night sky to Lady Onslow, who was actually the wife of the man who gave him the appointment at Tainstidden. So very important lady. And she's noble. So this is a very big thing for Reverend Harvest. And of course, he screws it up. And a most eccentric way oh boy <laughs> apparently again he's not just explaining the constellations of the night sky it's at night they're looking up at the night sky so it's dark outside keep that in mind during his explanation to the lady which was probably a rather long explanation knowing george harvest at one point, he had to relieve himself. Instead of excusing himself and going off to a nearby outhouse or somewhere where he could relieve himself, he came to the conclusion that under the cover of darkness, it was sufficient enough for him to relieve himself and no one would know. He peed his pants. Not even just that. During his lecture, Lady Onslow, again, the wife of the man who gave him this position, began to feel a very warm liquid about her feet. Apparently, George Harvest thought that he was facing away from her and gotten his right and left confused and thought he was peeing away from Lady Onslow when it turns out he was peeing right onto her leg. What is so complicated with saying, Madam, I will be right back. I must excuse myself for a moment. Get up, go outside, find the outhouse, find whatever it is that is the bathroom of the times, and using it. They're outside. But maybe he was too embarrassed to tell a lady, not, you know, a actual, like, lady, lady, noble. Like, excuse me, my lady, I must go off to the, the privy. But no, no he's just, he's like, he's like, it's dark outside. If I just turn in this direction, it'd be completely okay. But turns out he was peeing directly on her leg. What? Obviously he lost his position. I don't know. I didn't find that information. Oh. It's probable, but I did not find that. Hold on, let me look it up real quick. I didn't get that far. I was too busy laughing. I'm laughing too. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. I mean, this is a series. If you guys like this, let us know because I've got a long list of these guys to talk about. George Harvest is just my favorite on this list so far of these five people. How about we'll see if we can find the answer next time? 
Well, I don't know if there is an answer. So it doesn't seem like it. It should be easy access if there was. Right. Everything's popping up with just his general information. My assumption would be he lost his position and might have been kicked out of the church. <laughs> he may not have held that position any longer. Yeah, not seeing anything on on, on Wikipedia. Okay. Well, there's no Wikipedia page for him, but I'm on the Thames Ditton Suburban Village page, and there's nothing here either. So I'm going to assume that he probably lost his patronage with that particular family, and probably lost his uh, his position as a vicar but i'm not yeah. able to find that but if somebody knows let us know because i'm very curious but i cannot find any immediate information on that all right but i hope you enjoyed it and if you want more just let me know because I'm, I'm 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 all for giving you guys more crazy people oh i enjoyed this this was i don't know also again if you like this particular episode Wait until the next weird history. It's on the same vein, but slightly different. Yeah, and if you liked it, again, let us know. But in the meantime, that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. Bye.